welcome for SP. SNBN, sorry. <laughs> SNBN series. <coughs> so, yes, folks from here, as well as those joining from afar, including those from Singapore, my greetings and welcome to this session of discussing Dharma. As usual, before we go into the text, we'll sit quietly for a few minutes. So find yourself in a comfortable posture, whatever that happens to be, and try to settle the mind and the body. Take a moment to visualize the merit field. It could be simple, as simple as just visualizing Buddha Shakyamuni in the space in front of oneself. Or it could be a complex one with all of his disciples, lineage masters coming to the present moment. In our way, one does it. Try to think of the Buddhas and his disciples. Probably through their qualities, their inner qualities. Broadly speaking, they could be divided into two the realizations part and the degrees of abandonment, degrees of cessations they have obtained. In the case of the Buddha, both of these qualities have reached full combination. All the obstructions, obscurations having been completely rendered irreversible, eliminated and irreversible, whereas the realization parts reached full perfection, and those, and those of his disciples, whatever level of advancement they may be, they share in similar qualities of realizations, abandonments, though lesser degrees, but nonetheless, having directly test tested 
or experience actual true path and true cessation at the very least. Of those qualities, think of how they are responsible. For who they have become. In terms of their own individual achievement, security, sense of peace, joy as well as the potential would be an exemplary role model for others and also equipped with the ability to show the right path, unerring right path for others from their own experience, at least to the level they have already attended. That means, in the case of the Buddha, unlimited capacity to lead sentient beings, show the path in very means, methods, because of his or writing, having attained all these qualities to the full culmination. These realizations include qualities like great compassion, great loving kindness, purpose, tolerance, skillfulness, patience, all those at the perfected level, as well as that of the cessations, having eliminated both the afflictive and Cognitive obscurations. Feel inspired by these qualities. Make us wonder how I might appreciate this where I am right now. Also, think of fellow sentient beings surrounding us. Think of them as well. But clearly, drawing on our connectedness, interconnectedness, interdependence, mutually benefiting each other, mutually dependent. Going from the strength of one's reflection on interconnectedness, interdependence, feel inspired. 
for Muslims and others. Imbued with these qualities of love and compassion and great numbers of our fellow sentient beings, as well as inspiration and aspiration, appreciation, adjustment in terms of the qualities of the Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, Arthas, beings. Let's now recite this homage to Shakyamuni Buddha together. Let's stay in this motivation of Padvego Bodhicitta for the sake of all the sense of beings. Let's stay with this. and the karma induced by them. One has to make sure, yes, this bondage is breakable, that afflictions can be eliminated. With that, definitely the karma is ensuing, definitely will be eliminated. But the question is, are the afflictions subject to elimination? Can they be eliminated? There, our conviction must be in the connection between the afflictions and the root and the root ignorance. For that connection to be understood and conviction, one is to first and foremost identify what the ignorance is. and how they serve as the basis for all the afflictions. So in being able to identify correctly, unmistakably, ignorance within us, we have to first understand what it would look like able to identify the ignorance 
what would be what would we be looking at? <laughs> but that's identifying it. Look like. So there, the question of truths comes about. Although the subject matter of truth is something not just exclusively found in the Buddhist texts, it's understood that even the non-Buddhists, at least in the Indian traditions, they do also speak of truths. So in this regard, how would the truths that we have to understand differ from those being identified by them? And within the Buddhists, how the philosophical tenets progressively refine, tune up their understanding of the truths. So basically, irrespective of whether we have walked our way up those philosophical standards one by one, nonetheless, we should have some rough idea what those lower tenets systems look like to be able to correctly understand two truths from the Prasantika point of view. And there it's not just the matter identifying it, but also being convinced. Convinced in how the, the system of the true truths more particularly the ultimate truth, of course, with the support and the basis of the conventional truth, but ultimately, the ultimate truth has to be understood very clearly, correctly. Until we do that, we would be able to identify correctly the root of afflictions in the form of ignorance. So that's what we have to take into account in building the strength of aspiration for full awakening, the benefit of all sentient beings, both in, both in terms of feeling very strongly aspired to, and also supported by a sense of conviction that yes, it is possible to achieve.
Let's bring this up. Extend it. We understand. And let this all support this aspiration to achieve full awakening for the sake of all sentient beings. Let's use this session in complementing it further, strengthening it further. So with this motivation, let's pick up from where we left last time. So the topic about the nature of mind and the afflictions is very pertinent to what we just reflected on. So this question about the ignorance, of course, When it is laid out in the scriptures, even the scriptures kind of go about it in a in a step by step way, not right away. Kind of dealing with the ignorance at the level of the prasangikas. In any case, ultimately it is supposed to reach there, arrive there, and then kind of unpack that and understand it. But the main thing is not to think of this as a mere philosophical exercise, but rather think more strongly about the psychological dimension of it. of how understanding it or not is so connected with our aspiration, freedom from the afflictions. Our afflictions, by their very nature, come to be because of their insistence on something objective out there. And that's the reason why these Philosophical schools deal with this objectivity bit by bit, bit by bit, to the extent students at that level are capable of digesting. And then it's then pushed further and further and further until one arrives at the Prasangika Madhimika's perspective, where all that is to be eliminated in terms of objectivity is completely exhausted, completely eliminated. And it makes sense how that would be the furthest one could go, and how they will leave afflictions with nothing to latch onto. It's almost like afflictions, if they were to arise, in the face of having completely refuted any change of objectivity, it's like afflictions would have nothing but to kind of 
kind of deflated by itself with no no lifeline. So that's the reason why Buddhist teachings begin with no self and no self though presented in varying degrees of grossness, yet nonetheless starting with no-self, is quite telling about what its stand is with regard to how the afflictions come to be. And in a way, one is trained to think in that direction, in that perspective and eventually kind of build on it and refine it further and further. So so the important thing is when we look into ourselves and particularly when we are caught up in our afflictions of one kind or the other. One thing to look at is, of course, what's the story it is telling, how unfounded it is, etc. But deep down, what the entire story is based on, what the entire story is kind of smeared with, without exception, nothing, no empty space or spot is there. It is fully pervaded by that wrong perception. Like there of a painting on a canvas. No matter what color or what aspect of a painting you are talking of, it's all based on the canvas. So it's to the extent the canvas pervades all the entire painting, likewise, the projection of a subjective reality pervades the entire entire line of the story that the afflictions are trying to tell. So that part we have to understand. Not just the gross stories by themselves, but underpinning those stories, what's the what's the basis? What's the yeah, what's the very very foundation upon which those stories are being told? Okay, so with that, let's pick up from where we are, and then we'll also try to address some questions. I think, oh, yeah, we have some questions pending last time also. But there are certain points that I uh, shared last time that I needed to still fill in and then make sure at least my ideas came across correctly. <laughs> it may not be right, but... Okay. So this question about the nature of mind is so crucial. So crucial. I mean, in everyone's pursuit of happiness, joy, peace, in a lasting manner, but more so for 
Buddhist practitioners like Buddhists who base their entire kind of hope on eliminating the afflictions once forever, no matter how many lifetimes it may take. And then with regard to the afflictions itself, kind of thinking along the lines of dealing with the afflictions on the manifests at the, at the, at the manifest superficial level, deeper down, more deeper level, and then at the root level, even at further down at the instinct or latency level. So for such an aspirant, the nature of mind is so crucial to be understood correctly and to be kind of a subject of long reflection and deliberation as well. So, in a teaching by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, His Holiness is also calling for Buddhist practitioners uh, to, uh, to to come to not just be complacent with what we have in terms of what the scriptures say, but using them as a base, try to come up with new ways of presenting it in tune with the new reality, particularly in this given age, trying to know what the scientists stand is not so much to uh, refute them, but, uh, but to learn from them, and as well as know, kind of know the differences if there are in our stance, and how to make sense of either of, either of the stance. And, uh, and then in view of this, new reality, new, new kind of way, opposing stand, point, perspective, kind of uh, to up the presentation of the Buddhists as well in, in tune with their time. And it is not something unprecedented even in ancient time. If you look at the works of Dignag and Chandra Dharmakirti, you will see how new, new, deeper ways of looking at things, how with the basis of time, because of the reality of uh, how we have progressed in understanding things, there's this need of kind of uh, need of uh, insights, not totally out of line with the basic Buddhist principles, of course in line with it, but nonetheless 
vis-a-vis the, the contemporary new ways of looking, come up with a fine-tuned uh, position from the Buddhist path as well. So when we look at the works of Dignak and Dharmakirti, you will see a progression of decisions. Of course, based on the basic principles of Buddhism, in one sense one could say those new, seemingly new positions are already embedded in there, because, but they are not required at those times because of no opposition or no challenges faced to kind of address them. But in, with a new reality, uh, one should kind of own up one's own positions. That's saying, not just for the sake of defending Buddhism, but for the sake of one's own personal practice also. Because in the face of new reality, one has to have, as what you call, one has to have conviction uh, in one's path uh, in the face of these new opposing, if, if they are opposing and opposing positions, if they are uh, kind of in sync with the Buddhist position, then of course, uh, more so we learn this and kind of bring them in. So his holiness was uh, referring to the historical accounts of the writings of Dignag and Dharmakirti. And then such discussions uh, didn't happen after that. Uh, whereas up, up, up until the time of the Dharmakirti, uh, both the Buddhist and non-Buddhist gained from their discussion. So it seems like Uh, what you call defenses on the non-Buddhists they continued after Dharmakirti, but none from the Buddhist path took them up. It seems like so. So we are not speaking in terms of kind of uh, kind of uh, defending uh, per se, but uh, given the new reality, uh, those understandings and making clear what one's position would be from a Buddhist perspective rooted in the basic principles is very much. Uh, very much needed for one's own personal practice, as well as for the uh, for the sake of the Dharma itself, for you to pace with the time. It needs to have those fine-tuned decisions kind of brought up. So, 
it is in those respects that I kept, uh, I mean, not that I know much, but I try to refer to science, not so much as, as, a, as, a, as something to be uh, attacked or something to be uh, denigrated or depreciated, but uh, rather as a way of learning from and also kind of used as an asset uh, to fine-tune our own uh, understanding and deepening it. So with regard to this uh, nature of mind, uh, the reason why I brought up the cell theory was that the idea of a similitude for a cause is not something uh, totally new to the Buddhist. It's something even acceptable for modern science. In biology, they speak of somehow they came up with this idea, this, this, this position that yes, cells must come from prior cells. But at the same time, they kind of see that as a conundrum to be resolved. Thus, even Darwin himself had to kind of propose that maybe in so many, many, many long time, billions of years uh, period, uh, there might have been some way by which life could have come from non-life, which means non-self, self could have come from non-self. Uh, but at the same time, what could have necessitated them to come up with this second basic tenet of cell theory? <laughs> Maybe they couldn't find any other way but for a prior cell to be present for a cell to come. So that's not the same thing as saying mind has to come from a prior mind because mind and body are different, but this concept of similitude is very much, um, is, is not foreign to the scientists. That's what I'm presenting. <laughs> so, in this regard, yes, I was going to share another story, yeah. His Holiness was saying, yes, we make this prayer. Uh, do, we, do we say this in the, in, in the, at the Abbey? May I never be pardon? Yeah, may I never be separated from, from the perfect teacher in all the lives, right? In all my life. Do we say that? Okay. So he's saying that, yes, we make this prayer, and this is premised on the fact that we are supposed to progress, so progress along lives of lives. But what we really see in reality is not necessarily in tune with it. <laughs> so, particularly referring to tulku system, 
is another thing. I would be the right person to speak about this. Others couldn't, cannot speak. I would be right to speak about this because I'm among Tulkus. I could be criticizing the Tulkus. And so he was commenting on the fact that at least what appears on the surface is not like the previous one, that the present one is progressing on where the previous one had left. <laughs> so he was saying that we need to take things seriously. And but at the same time, uh, he points out that in the case of the second Dalai Lama, when he was very young, maybe at the care of his, in the care of his mother, very young, he was able to compose very prolifically, and then had so many visions. So was Gyalung Dogya. So I think he was the tenth Dalai Lama, although he was it was it tenth. So, uh, at least uh, one of those Dalai Lamas who passed away very early, early in childhood, he lived up to only 10th year, but by that time, even within, within that year, so many visions. And in the case of the second Dalai Lama, he was able to compose. It sounded like he was very, very young, very young, almost, I mean, very young. He would maybe hardly walking, but what he would speak is poems or composition. So he was always saying that not that there were no examples of such things, but compared to what we are supposed to be investing on, the, the harvest is not as much, <laughs> the product is not as much. So basically, he was commenting on this, this supposedly progression. Because if you don't progress through lives, then, then the possibility of ever making to Buddha will not be there. And thus, from our own efforts, it should be kind of I mean, jointly, uh, collectively, as well as individually, we should be uh, putting our efforts in making sure we get to see that as, as reality. At the same time, His Holiness was saying that, yes, generally speaking, yes, realizations are something to be kept to yourself, not yet. But nonetheless, given what is, uh, what is going around around us, going around us, at least uh, from among those who have been recognized as the continuation of the previous rebirth, and that too, among those in whom signs were strong enough to point to their being the continuation, but what is happening? They were just able to, just barely able to kind of verify that they are the continuation in one way, uh, in one way, kind of 
supporting the idea of rebirth. But at the same time, in terms of quality's progression, it's not progressing, it's even seemingly going down. So that doesn't speak well about the possibility of what you call spiritual progression. So merely keeping being born and being able to show signs that yes, that's the continuation previous one is not enough. In this regard, I, I remember very clearly our dialectic school teacher, principal, the late Ken Lovsangyaso. At one point, uh, it became quite popular what he said. <laughs> what he said of Tulkus. He was half jokingly saying it, but half seriously playing with the young Tulkus of the same monastery, Tepung. So when they would come to Dramsala for teachings, to attend teachings, whatnot, Gela will be there at the dialectic school, belonging to the same monasteries. So they would have some affinity and some closeness, whatnot. And he would jokingly say, What are you doing? You only serve as a good, you only serve as a supporting example for rebirth, but on the but but on the other hand, in terms of what we claim the possibility of progressing, increasing in our achievement, in our realization, you seem to be pointing the other way. So you are tumbe, you are supporting example for this, but what would be the but a defeating example for the other one? At that time, our, I remember very clearly, it became so famous. It might have made to His Holiness, I think. And the Tulkus were also not upset, but they were really saying, wow, there was an eye-opening statement he made. But at the same time, as I mentioned last time also, the need, the, 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 the need to prepare well for a good quality of death is also very crucial. <laughs> and in that regard, one thing we have to very clearly remember is, of course, Remember, what we should remember is that citation from the Sutra that was cited in Namrinchemu also, as well as in Vasubandhu's, not Vasubandhu's, in Ajika, in Vasubandhu's auto-commentary with Abhidhamma Kush. There also he quotes this Sutra, where it talks about mechanism of how karmas ripen. Of which the first one that would ripe which which ripen is the most grave, the gravest one. Positive wise, negative wise. The next one is whatever is close by. Not whatever is one whatever one one, one is habituated in. But whatever is close by to the time of death. That is so important to remember. 
And then if there's no, no, no karma sticking out as being the close one at that time, then whatever one is habituated in, that's, that's the, only then it gets to ripen, otherwise not. So, so this, yeah, this master that I was supposed to look up, I didn't, uh, it is not in his mentioned in one of the teachings was his master along with his student, seemingly uh, hermits, both of them hermits, otherwise it would be quite, uh, quite a chore to pack up everything every night, <laughs> to, to wind down everything every night. <laughs> So they, they, they must be hermits in the first place, must have very little, but whatever they had, they would assume, wholeheartedly think that he, they might not see it the next day. And that will come, I mean, we all can, that will come from our reflection and meditation on the, not just the certainty that, but in the uncertainty of how and when it will come, which is 100% true, but at the same time, it's so difficult to come by. <laughs> we kind of feel assured, like, we have tomorrow. There's almost no doubt in us, right? Yeah, there will be tomorrow. I'll be doing this tomorrow. For sure. Which is clear indication that, oh, how can you say that? And to that extent, we are not prepared to die properly. <laughs> anyway, okay, so. Where, where were we? The third era. Within, okay, according to Sutrayana, from, from the viewpoint of the primary consciousness, that we only now we, next paragraph, okay. Within Tantrayana, both Dokshin and the new translation. So when, when you say Dokshin and the new translation, it's quite clear that Dokshin belongs to the old translation school, right? That's enigma. Both Dokshin and the new translation schools, by the way, new translation schools means all the orders of Tibetan Buddhism except Nyingma, right? Mm, the new translations speak of the subtlest mind, which may be called the Rikpa, or the primordial clear light mind. In the Dzogchen system, Rikpa is said to pervade all states of mind, whether they are coarse or subtle or such as the consciousness manifest during our everyday lives, or subtle, such as the subtle clear mind that arises after the course consciousness is absorbed or dissolved, for example, while dying or doing special tantric meditations. Pardon? So, uh, so how would it be changed? Honorable taught this paragraph. Mm -hmm. 
she changed the words where it says while dying she changed that to at death oh yeah i see i see okay yeah 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 yeah, but still we can, even while dying, we can say that, because while dying, the dying process, particularly the last three ones before the death, all those, all those three um, final states of dying until the actual death, the, the last four, they belong to the subtlest consciousness. They're so subtle that they are called subtlest. And from among them, the last one at death is called the subtlest of the subtlest. Because compared with the rest of the consciousness, those are so subtle. Yeah. So, Rigpa. So yes, I was saying, Rigpa needs to be understood within its own context. Otherwise, Rigpa is used even within within the scriptures itself in so many different ways. So how do you translate Lorik Shesum in the Lorik Lorikpa Sheba? Yeah, I, I cannot think of how it is rendered in Tibetan English. It must be because there are many Lorik texts, but uh, I hardly read the English Lorikpa Sheba. Pardon? Ah, I see. So, low Rigpa Shepa, that's one context in which Rigpa comes. And in that respect, low Rigpa Shepa, they are all coextensive. And uh, they are all coextensive, and they are different names for the same, same, same thing. So, broadly speaking, it would be consciousness. But how would you distribute <laughs> So that's one context in which Rigpa comes. And there it means all consciousnesses. All consciousnesses, primary, sem, semjung primary, secondary, afflictions, non-afflictive, uh, positive consciousnesses, all of them. Yes. I think it, it means uh, awareness, knower, and consciousness, or it's trans one way of translating it is awareness, knower, and consciousness. Those are all um, synonymous. I see. Awareness, yeah, I mean, one has to come up with something, right? So, law, law request. So, in that case, Shepa, Shepa will be knower. Rigpa may be awareness. Law may be. Law is awareness. Okay, law is awareness. Rigpa is knower. Yeah, Shepa is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all all of them. At, at least Rigpa and Shepa, both of them have very explicit connotation of knowing. Shepa means knowing. Rigpa means seeing. Yeah. So, in any way, what my main point was. Uh, when we speak of low rikpa shepa, in that context, rikpa is coextensive with uh, low and shepa, and they're all three 
uh, encompasses everything consciousness, irrespective, positive, negative, primary, secondary. And then in another context, Rigpa is very specifically uh, used uh, to 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 convey the exact opposite of Marikpa. Marikpa of ignorance. Yeah. So there it, it is Rikpa. Rikpa is not that which is not just Marikpa. Not that that which is not just not Marikpa. That which is not just other than Marikpa, but rather that which is diametrically opposed opposite to it. That is called Rikpa. So that's more like the wisdom. Wisdom. So there, in the Pasangikapala perspective, Rikpa would be the wisdom understanding emptiness. But then in the context of Dzogchen, not that I know much, but in the context of Dzogchen, Rikpa is very specific. Usually it is it is uh, separated from Sem. Sem is, again, so because it is used differently, it, one has to take this usage of the term Sem in the Dzogchen context with uh, with caution, uh, with the, yeah, not just taking it as Sem in general. Anyway, so in that respect, so when we have afflictions or whatnot, uh, at that time, both Sem and Rikpa may be happening together. And there's, there's so, so, the, so the main practice is to separate the two, tell one apart from the other. In that in that context, sem is considered to be mistaken, uh, whereas rikpa is considered to be non-mistaken. Yet at the same time, it is considered to be a little different from the mere knowing and clear, mere mere clear and cognizant aspect, because rikpa is considered to be much more subtler. So there's the, the closest that it comes uh, comes to require as understood in the Nyingma tradition. The closest that comes from the new school tradition, at least from the Geluk, Will be the subtlest clear mind, but uh, that is considered to be not uh, manifest, not manifest so long as the grosser consciousness are manifest. Whereas Rikpa is considered to be accessible, even uh, in the midst of afflictions. Of course, not when one is giving in to the afflictions, but while one has afflictions, there is a way of kind of 
suspending, I think, suspending, pursuing it, suspending uh, one's investment in the affliction, but rather kind of almost like suspend that that uh, state and then let part of mind look at it. Not kind of not give in to its it's not 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 going along its story <laughs> not going along its story and not kind of uh, following in its footsteps uh, yet at the same time not deliberately suppressing it or deliberately uh, chasing it away but kind of suspends kind of keep that Kind of suspend it in, in a way, kind of let that be there without oneself falling for its exploits. And then, in the in the in the course of doing that, I mean, outwardly it would almost look like doing nothing. So his holiness, not that I have received any 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 doctrine teachings or not, but his holiness. Uh, on and off in the teachings, whenever there are uh, relations, connections, associations, you uh, would share with Dzogchen. Uh, experiences and Dzogchen understandings. And there he would very often emphasize how this way of almost no thinking is different from the blanking out of blanking out of chasing away thoughts, no thinking kind of a thinking less state of mind pursued in other traditions. So he would kind of tell them apart by saying that kind which is that kind of practice which outwardly seem like very similar to blanking the mind, uh, but at the same time is uh, associated, kind of, it is accompanied by menga uh, kebarje, accompanied by uh, special instruction from a, a living, experienced master. Then, such meditation, though at the surface may look like, look very similar to blanking the mind, would have very different end result in kind of getting to know very subtle nature of mind. But in terms of what does that really come to in terms of something about mind? Whether it is the empty nature of it, or it is its subtle, uh, subtle, clear light nature, I'm not so sure. So anyway, uh, the understanding is that rigva, which broadly speaking is similar to the primordial Kalyanite mind in the parlance of these new translation schools. Uh, it's, it's, it's said to 
pervade all types of consciousnesses, including the very, uh, very afflicted ones. But, but it's to convey something a little different from what the new translation schools would uh, understand in terms of the relationship between consciousness in general and the settlers clear that mind. Because from the news translation school also, our whole being, our whole being, which can be divided into mind and body, is kind of ultimately, uh, kind of ultimately linked to our clear that mind and its accompanying energy. So in a way, it is not separated from there, uh, let alone our own mind and body, but the entirety of noumena can be traced back to the subtlest clear that mind, so much so that it would be considered to be the basis of samsara and nirvana. So that aspect is not talking about emptiness. That aspect is not talking about Things being mere mind, mere projection of the mind, like the Chitta Bhattras are saying. Nor is it saying that things come from things. Things can be overpowered or controlled by the mind. But it has something to do with uh, almost like, almost like uh, the. The original source of everything. So that would be a little different from that would be not saying that there is one thing that is the source of everything. Broadly speaking, there is one which is settlers clear like mind, but that is not one monolithic thing. Yeah. So Apart from our own individual world, there's no world separate. And our individual world is what you call rooted in our own uh, individual subtlest clear mind and the energy. So, so that is yet another aspect of um, aspect of the mind's function and His Holiness says that's. Uh, even more difficult and more subtle to understand. So, yeah. Requires undefiled and sim, which is mind, but I don't know if it's the mind as, as we usually understand. So the mind, so the effort is to Tell require apart from the same. So that means, in the midst of affliction, if one could succeed in keeping a distance from the from the affliction, yet retain it, then in the face of looking at it, uh, while the mind actually does nothing but look, uh, almost like there's no action there but look. So, or be merely 
aware of it. And in the in the in the in the midst of it, there's this possibility of kind of getting a glimpse or an insight into the into into the undefiled required aspect of it. So in that respect, it almost sounds more like the clear cognizant aspect. Uh, but but uh, that's not what is uh, usually uh, understood to be uh, associated with. Rather, it is more aligned to subtle little like clear light mind. That would be mostly the subject matter of tantric presentations, if it were to be in the uh, new translation schools. Yes. I was reading a, I'll describe this, a book of some Westerners, maybe 20 years ago, they were, they were scholars, but they're also practitioners and they were studying hermits mm -hmm. and they went to like, I think, I want to say like Spiti and places like that, whatever. And the one person they interviewed said that, which I've never heard before, that um, Mahamudra was like from the looking from the let's say basis path and result kind of path level and Dzogchen was more result level perspective. Is that is that possible? Or, or is that you know was one yogi's what he told them is what they recorded. I see. And I was thinking, well these subtle minds are so subtle, maybe it's just the perspective that you're looking at them from, I don't know. Yeah, usually the stand is, although even for Mahamudra, it's the Sutra level of Mahamudra and Tantra level of Mahamudra, at least from the perspective of Benjamin's Chinyan. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, the usual understanding is the Mahamudra and the Toxin. Uh, is kind of uh, the approach of the Haj Yoga Tantra. So from the from the news translation school perspective, it would be like talking about mind from the Haj Yoga Tantra. Uh, and very often, uh, very often they are spoken of in in terms of being the view. Uh, and that would be speaking of the view, not in terms of the objective view, but view in terms of subjective view in in conjunction with the objective view as well. So that's the reason why very often this this differentiation between uh, what view constitutes in the below perspective of most of the yeah I think Geluk perspective and what view constitutes in the Kaju and Yigma perspective in terms of whether it is mere absence or even a presence that's very often talked about and very often people 
talk of them as being the difference. But it is not so much difference, even if, even from the Gelug point of view, the highest yoga tantra, there are other occasions when we speak of view, a subjective point of view. And at that time, the subjective, subjective component of the view will be the subtlest mind with the objective mere negation view as its object. And that combination is spoken as, or spoken of as the view, in which case that view will not be mere negation, it will be presence rather. Uh, so very often we speak of Dzogchen and even Mahamudra, not that we grade the two differently, but rather both of them as uh, approaching from the Ajyogatandra. Any, any, Venerable Senji, you had a question. Uh, is it still there? Oh. <laughs> Not necessary. I have, I have some questions to do with. Two. One, the one from last week was along the my reading over the years. Um, my question is: Is there any relevance to this term of temporary cessation? I've heard it in the FT, FPMT's Buddhist, you know, I think Yeshitashi Sering uses that a lot. He's talking about the Four Noble Truths. Is there any, how would you define that? What are the, what is the relevance, if any, on our progress along the path oh, yeah, yeah. to look for them, to support them, or how do they build for the final true cessation as we're going along the way? Yeah, this is interesting. This is this is associated with a Tibetan term that I'm myself perplexed in how to really convey it. It is so sort of so sort of So in English they're sometimes translated as discursive wisdom, discriminative, sometimes discursive, or something like that. But it has to do with Probing into the nature of the mind, or probing into the nature, ultimate nature of things. So, cessation generated by a wisdom probing into the ultimate nature of the mind is called sosor tango. Go is cessation obtained through the means of such a wisdom, which is probing in nature, and which gets to the ultimate nature, which means understanding emptiness. So cessation generated by an understanding of emptiness would be considered to be true cessation, lasting cessation. And the, the term is social tango, kind of the means by which you have attained, obtained that is kind of is uh, built into the name of that cessation. So that's true cessation. So any cessation, any suspense of afflictions, like, oh, somebody is very angry, now is no more angry. But if it is not generated by an understanding of emptiness, that is a cessation, temporary cessation, because it is so so tang min gokpa. Gokpa is cessation generated or obtained not through the means of so so tang, not by the means of a probing wisdom. 
So it's not something we have to look for necessarily separately, but we have to keep doing what we do, and then we generate, we gain such decisions through our Sheila practice, consistent, persistent uh, Sheila practice, concentration to, the, to a certain extent. Concentration to a certain extent can even undermine the root, undermine the seed of afflictions, so much so that it will almost seem like the seeds have, that you have gotten the seeds and they have been cleared, that uh, afflictions will be kept at bay and will be kept from manifesting for long. But it's by the virtue of the strength, the concentration that one has even got down to the root of it and undermined it, but not uprooted it. So within the so-called temporary cessations, there would be degrees of how, how deep and lasting they could be. So, oh, last time when I spoke about uh, how the, the, the probability versus the possibility, so basically what I'm seeing is that people undergo different experiences in the samsara, even in the in the backward eternity. <laughs> so, based on that, and and that to a great extent. I should rather say, as sentient beings, would be dependent on our own intention, our own choices. And thus, uh, we may call, we may say uh, people have done everything, but not in the sense that they would have done everything equally. And thus, uh, and nor is there any guarantee that they would have done everything, because of course not everything, right? Not anything, not everything, leading to nirvana. So much of it is left out. Uh, so there is no need for kind of a, a complete uh, uh, equality or equity, I was using the term, uh, in terms of what we have done up to this point, despite the fact that we have been in existence from time immemorial. Right? So I was saying that it is possible that there could be someone who has not yet served as one's mother, even once. It's possible. When I say possible, it is possible that they have done. It is also possible. Uh, that, I mean, when I say that, that it is possible for they have not been my mother up to now, at least once, even at, at least once, I'm also saying that it's possible that, that they may not be true also. I'm not saying it is possible and it's impossible in one breath. That would be contradictory. But I'm saying that it is possible that they may not have served as my mother, which is equal to saying it is even also possible that they would have, they may have served us. So the possibility part uh, doesn't deny that uh, the other one may have served. And that's why we could, uh, we could, uh, Kind of rest assured, we could still give the benefit of the doubt uh, to everyone having served as not just once a mother, but for countless times. But at the same time, scientifically speaking, there's no guarantee, there's no necessity that it would have to be already there. So it's in tune with science. 
and I have, and I don't recall uh, where, but I have heard His Holiness, not explicitly bringing up and elaborating on it, but did point to that. But because there is no way we could know for sure, we'll always be giving the benefit of the doubt and saying they could have served. And thus, that will not be affected. But in terms of uh, kind of being clear-cut, uh, I, th I think, uh, speaking of the possibility of, 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 of someone, I mean, along this line, possibility of someone having missed being this or that, etc. Uh, that's more in line with the reality. So, because of that, we can make this decision how someone got ahead of us and we are still behind, like that. <laughs> huh. Yeah, also, the thing about when we speak of bodhisattva, when we speak that, yes, it could be lost at least at the initial stages. We're speaking of possibility. It's not guaranteed. It's not guaranteed to be lost. It's, there's a possibility in that during that small pocket of time. During that small pocket of time means, see, we speak of 22 bodhicitas, right? 22 bodhicitas along the path to Buddhahood from the time you generated it. So it's not 22 different bodhicitas, but bodhicitas. Or uh, what do you call it? Uh, bodhicitas. What's the expression? Bodhicitas uh, aligned with, or what do you call, associated with particular, particular level of the path. So all of them are bodhicitas, but they have been specifically for the convenience of relating with them. Uh, in terms of the progression of all the rest of the path, but now we speak of bodhicitas in chunks. From this point, this point, this point, this point. So that's how we come up with 22. <laughs> Out of which only the first one is the one which is liable to be lost, not the second. And that the first one comes during the path of, during the small level of the tree of the path of accumulation. And, and within that, it, it's, it's very early stage. So it is not necessary that one should, one necessarily has to lose it once one has uh, generated it. So, even though one may be an ordinary being, ordinary bodhisattva, but you can imagine how much effort and strength of mind it takes to generate genuine, generate bodhisattva. Where all you think day and night is bodhisattva aspiration, uh, have aspiration to become Buddha, genuinely. Yeah, I'm trying to clear. It.
Yeah, deal with any 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 remaining question. There is one which says you mentioned in last Friday's very very last 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 Friday's teaching that it is hard to come up with a watertight reasoning that we can develop good qualities limitlessly. Can you explain why? I was I I remember clearly saying that. But what I was saying was, uh, depending on how we understand by what we understand by generating good qualities limitlessly, uh, it will make a difference between difference between whether we can defend such a position or not. So I was saying that in the case of qualities being developed limitlessly, it it may not be tenable to understand it in the way we usually understand being something being limitless. Because in the case of the Buddhas, you cannot say now the Buddhas have still more to grow. So, yeah, still more to grow. Although compassion can be developed limitlessly, and you can say, what about the compassion of the Buddha? Can it be developed limitlessly? Does it have still room to develop further? So, not in that sense, but limitlessly in the sense of what strength and power, ability it has to show up in ways that one can hardly imagine. When, how, etc. So limitless in that sense that even the Buddhas among themselves cannot say that this is this is the limit by which you could show up or by which you could This is the limit. This is the limit for your compassion to extend to this being, or this being, to that occasion, not that occasion, etc. So in that form, so in all types of ways, the the possibility is unimaginable, and even the Buddhas, because there is no no limit, even the Buddhas cannot see the limit. So that's another way of calling it. <laughs> So that's what I meant. So that means if we understand limitless in a different way, then that's otherwise if we de define it in our usual way, then uh, no reasoning can can because it will be in in contradiction with what we claim the state of Buddha would to be. Yeah, so in terms of why consciousness is able to take up a reside, we already talked about that. There is this additional need of life. So that's uh, another topic. We usually don't speak of that in the Buddhist context. But uh, it is very relevant because in science they speak of life, uh, not necessarily sentient. Although they do not rule it out, but there's no clear proof for that. Uh, whereas from a Buddhist perspective, we can speak of things with life, but not not being. So the being part is um, the sentient one. But in both of them, in both those cases, to have life uh, is common. So for being a sentient, it has to have life, and life is different from might.
But then what connects them? See, in the case of our samsaric condition, it's our karma, karmic force. So in terms of scriptures, uh, there may be uh, more detailed um, explanations in the highest yoga tantra, particularly uh, Kala Chakra also. Uh, but in the Sutra, they will usually find this uh, more covered in the Abhidhamma, uh, Abhidhamma circle of teachings. And very often, except for a few, few, what do you call, fine tunings and adaptations, uh, most of it will be something exotic. All the schools, all the schools, all the philosophical schools. I think it's uh, so the time we should stop. Otherwise, if we stop in the middle, then you do not get meditate as much. <laughs> it's the time is lost. Yeah, I think I have done away with this, done away with the questions, touched all the questions. <laughs> yeah, so we will have next, we have time, next time. Yeah. Okay, let's, yeah.